Live from downtown Boogertown, it's Three Hillbillies on a Couch with your hosts, Boo Boo, Biggins, and Buford, three of the hillbillies in the holler. Y'all pull up a chair and set a spell. And welcome back to glorious downtown Boogertown. I'm Buford. I'm Boo Boo. And Biggins is on special assignment. Well, that's the story we're going with. That's why his probation officer said. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we are uh, ha- we have a very special guest uh, on the air with us today. Um, we've got uh, a fellow that was just recently uh, on uh, the Greatest Escapes uh, episode eight uh, about James Earl Ray with uh, Morgan Freeman on the History Channel, uh, and his name is Larry Wright. Larry, how you doing today? I'm doing good, boo boo. How are you? What we just <laughs> doing good. Well, we uh we enjoyed that episode. We just watched it. Said, man, we gotta get Larry on this thing because we're so close to Brushy Mountain, and you know, with all the loved ones we've had to visit over the years, you know, we feel like we might know you. <laughs> now that and that's we didn't mention that in the opening, but you you were a guard at Brushy Mountain Prison here in Tennessee. Yes, yeah, um, I worked at Brushy for thirty two years. Oh wow! Uh, and worked all of that in security. Um, I worked. Every post that was up there, uh, and in the latter years before Brushy closed in '09, uh, I was uh, in the high security unit in the max unit. Well, if you don't mind, because I know I'll get it wrong, Larry, but if you can give us a brief history of the history of Brushy Mountain. Well, Brushy was actually started uh, in the early 1890s. The state of Tennessee had a leasing program where they leased inmate labor to coal companies based out of here in Knoxville. And over a period of time, what they ended up doing was putting pre-world coal miners out of work. The coal miners all banded together, loaded the inmates on a train, and sent them back to Nashville. (laughs) Nashville, in turn, sent the state militia in. The state militia came in, and they, uh, it eventually was called the Coal Creek War, very similar to the Hatfields and McCoys. You had the coal miners on one hill shooting at the state militia on the other side. Wow. wow. After, after uh, a year or two of that, the state militia surrendered. They went back to Nashville. The state of Tennessee said, we'll mine coal for ourselves and make the money from it ourselves. So then in 1896, the prison was completed, and uh, they st- uh, shipped in the first load of inmates into the prison in 1896 and started mining coal for themselves. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how many mines over the years, but I know at one time they had about seven or eight, maybe nine mines going. Uh, the inmates had a quota they had to get out each day. Um, if they didn't get reach their quota, there was what was called a whipping post. Oh, wow. And they were, they were tied to the whipping post and whipped with a big leather strap. My wow. goodness. Somebody's making some yeah. money. Well, they- somebody made some, somebody made a lot of money off of it because the inmates were, um, they were only paid, uh, very, very small wages. Oh, I'm sure. And really, each yeah. uh, each inmate had to get a quota of eight tons a day. Oh my goodness! Tennessee Ernie Ford had to get sixteen tons. <laughs> he had to get sixteen tons. <laughs> he, he didn't have a stripe on him. <laughs> he didn't. Have, no. 
Wow, that's amazing. I see. I didn't know that. That's that's the kind of history that people just don't even realize ever even happened. Yeah, there's there's so much there's so much history about Brushy that people don't don't realize. Now, Brushy was uh, at one time one of the top five most violent prisons in the nation. Um, My goodness. Over the years, over the years, there has been um, the 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 amount of death either through coal mining accidents, disease, or murder from one inmate to the other, the total number of dead is approaching 10,000 inmates. Oh, wow. That's that's astonishing. Wow. Yes. Now, when they now said over that, the years, from they... the time Brushy opened until it closed, we had uh, over 300,000 inmates come through. So that was about uh, 120 years from the yes. early 1890s to yeah. 2009. 1896 to 2009. So we had, so 113 years. Yeah. Now, when they said you were sentenced to hard labor, that's what they meant. That's exactly what they meant. And the average sentence at one time for inmates at Brush was uh, an average of 200 years per man. Oh, my. You wasn't getting out. No, you wouldn't get now. And so many of them, you know, they knew that when they came there, uh, they were expected to die there. And a lot of the inmates, uh, whenever they would try to contact the families and say, hey, your son, Johnny Boy, is at Brushy Mountain. Now, the inmates would say, no, don't tell my family where I'm at. There's no need in them coming to see me because this is where I'm going to die. But it, so they don't need to come see me. But doesn't that make a dangerous situation for uh, the occupation you were in? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of guys with nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. And, and in a lot of ways, that's where uh, the catchphrase of Brushy being the end of the line, that's where it came in. It was because you went to Brushy and you knew you weren't leaving. You knew you were going to die. Then in later years... Uh, as society got a little more lenient on how much time they'd given him make when they sent him to prison, the end of the line came to be known because of Russia being a level five max prison. If other prisons in the state couldn't handle you because of your behavior and the way you acted, then they sent you to Brushy Mountain. And meaning that was the end of the line for you. You had nowhere else to go. You either conformed to Brushy's ways or, you know, you you pretty much died there. Well, I'll tell you, if I was loading uh, eight tons of coal a day and uh, <clears throat> having to get whipped if I didn't, if I did get out, you better believe that'd been a big deterrent to keep me from coming back. Exactly, exactly. I'd definitely have a wood burning stuff. I would I would be towing the line. <laughs> Son, I'll tell you what. Now, uh, you, you were talking about it being the... High security prison that they they sent a lot of uh, uh, the really worst of the worst up there like that. Uh, well, yeah, I mean that's what that's what Brushy was known for housing the worst of the worst, meaning that nobody else in the state could handle them because of their behavior. So we ended up with the worst. When did they now, stop the coal mining? Uh, when did they quit? Yeah, uh, they quit coal mining in nineteen sixty seven. Oh goodness! And and when they when they quit in '67, they didn't quit because they ran out of coal. The coal is still there. Um, it was an extremely high grade of coal, 
And what they did with it, uh, outside the prison walls, they had uh, what were called coke ovens. And the coal was processed, the co- uh, coke was extracted from it, and then that coke was sold to steel companies to make a better quality of steel. I see. And uh, when they quit in 67, uh, the res- uh, the warden that was in charge at the time was named Lake Russell. Uh, Lake Russell was a former uh, football coach at Carson Newman. Uh, there was uh, one of the mines collapsed. Several inmates got killed. Several inmates and some of the uh, uh, mining foremen, which were free world people, uh, got killed. It bothered the warden pretty bad. He put a stop to the coal mines in 1967. Now, that whipping post that I mentioned earlier, they quit the uh, whipping post in 1965. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> what uh, kind of occupations did they have them do after they stopped the uh, well, coal mining? After after the coal mines, there were uh, maintenance positions, electrical, plumbing. Uh, you had paint crews. Uh, you had... Uh, Lawn care, landscaping, mowing yards. Uh, then they started, uh, they had the uh, state honor farm, which were custody inmates. Uh, the state honor farm was where the Morgan County prison is now near Frozen Head State Park. And the uh, state raised their own cattle, raised their own hogs, raised their own food. So for a long time, Berkshire Mountain Prison was self-sufficient. The state didn't have to give them any, didn't have to uh, uh, allocate any money for them for their budget. Because they were uh, making so much they money. They were self-sufficient. Yeah. They sure wasn't going to send militia over. No. No. Well, <laughs> what, uh, no. Did, we, were, we were laughing about it because in my research, I, I found a, a song a, a guy had done a few years ago saying, I'm up at Brushy Mountain making Tennessee plates. Did they ever really make yeah. license plates? No, not that I'm aware of. Uh, from everything that I've ever known or, or saw, uh, all of the plates were all made in Nashville or in Memphis. At, at the prison? Um, uh, yeah, at the uh, Fulfilla prison in Me- just outside of Memphis or one of the prisons in Nashville where the uh, license plates were made. Now, the, the song, the guy that sang the song was Mark Colley. Yes. Now, in 2001, 2002, I think it was, Mark Colley came to Brushy, did a concert uh, very similar to what Johnny Cash did at Folsom uh, in California. And uh, he brought, uh, the title of the concert was Mark Colley and Friends. Well, the friends that he brought, one of the friends he brought was Tim McGraw. Neat. And at the the prison now, in the gift shop, uh, the CD that they recorded that day is on sale. So that uh, that concert can be, you can buy that on uh, from the Brushy uh, website. Well, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, right. uh, BigfootSearchGear.com. Do you walk through the forest with an eye open for the unknown? Do you believe that Bigfoot is out there somewhere? He may be hiding, but you don't have to. Let the world know you believe. Visit BigfootSearchGear.com for the largest collection of apparel and gifts for Bigfoot enthusiasts. Bigfoot t-shirts, 
hats, stickers, signs, and keychains, as well as Sasquatch hot sauce. It'll make you howl like a Yeti. Go to BigfootSearchGear.com and enter promo code HILLBILLIES at checkout for 10% off. Free shipping to anywhere in the U.S. on orders over $25. BigfootSearchGear.com And we're back. All right, so we are talking with Larry Wright, who was a guard at Brushy Mountain uh, Prison here in Tennessee for 32 years. And uh, we've been talking about the the history of the prison. Now, the um, you mentioned before the break that they had um, that that there's a gift shop there. So the 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 prison is still open to the public now as a like a yeah. tourist attraction. Yeah, the prison the, the prison now is uh, privately owned. Uh, we do uh, tours of the institution. So you went uh, there today. We'll start back doing the tours in April. Uh, I think what we're going to do in, when we start in April will be uh, four days a week, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then about May or so, we'll go to seven days a week. Uh, we also have uh, paranormal tours, ghost hunts, ghost tours. Yeah, and uh, there have been, there's been several of the ghost shows that are on TV that you watch. Several of them have been there. And and recorded stuff. Um, yeah, I've seen if, a lot if people of those are interested, online. they can go to uh, they can get on YouTube and type in Brushy Mountain Paranormal and see a lot of those shows. Have you ever witnessed anything unusual there? I've never saw anything. I've heard a lot of sounds. I've heard people talking, and nobody's there but me. Um, that's creepy here, here recently, uh, doors will shut and, and that type of thing. Uh, we've had people talk about, uh, feeling somebody touch them while they're there. Um, we've had several people that have recorded things when they take, uh, take photos and stuff with their cameras. Uh, we've asked that they, you know, share those with us. And we have we have several pictures and photos and stuff of, of things that's been caught on camera. Um, but I personally have never saw anything. But I have heard voices, uh, heard doors shut, uh, heard cell doors shut, knowing good and well that they're locked. Wow. You know, and, and that type of thing. Well, our buddy Biggins is not here, and that's too bad because just a few moments ago we would have gotten Biggins' inappropriate giggle of the week when you talked about people going to prison and feeling people touching them. (laughs) 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 Biggins usually finds something to giggle about every week. (laughs) But, yeah, that's – well, I'd seen a lot of those paranormal things online of – people going to Brushy Mountain, and every time they do, I say, you know, I need to go up there and check that out. Yeah, you need to come and check it out. Well, what do they, uh, what What are your tours like in the, the daytime tours, just your regular tours when people come up? They, you take- well, what, when I do the tours and stuff, my tours that I do usually last about two, two and a half hours. And I give them history of the, sto- uh, history of the prison. Uh, I show them... And we'll unlock the door where one of James Earl Ray's cells was. James Earl was 
the uh, confessed killer to Dr. Martin Luther King in the 60s. Uh, I'll open the door, let him get in his cell, take pictures. Uh, and I tell them, you know, there's no, there's no question that you shouldn't ask. Uh, it, because 90, 95% of the people that come up here and take the tours, they, they don't know anything about the prison. So I just tell them, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking and you think of something you want to ask, ask me. And, you know, and a lot of it's, you know, just, uh, question and answer type things during the tours. Uh, I show them where things have happened inside the prisons. Uh, some of the notorious or more famous, uh, murders have happened. I tell them some of the stories about that, what led up to it. Uh, I tell them some of the personal things that I was involved in with, uh, you know, with fights and things like that over the years and, uh, well, if you don't mind, uh, tell, tell us tell us one of those stories. Uh, well, believe it or not, there was uh, an inmate held a gun to my face one night. Well, he, uh, how'd he get a gun? I was well. They were smuggled into him in pieces, and uh, it took six months to get it to him. All of the pieces it took him six months to put it together. Uh, this particular inmate was, was rather small and he had a, he had a bad leg. So with him being small and having a, you know, a, a handicap, uh, one of the larger inmates, uh, preyed on him as being weak and he was trying to extort money from him. And the inmate told him, said, well, you know, tonight I'll, uh, I'll come down there and pay you. So when that small inmate got out to, take his nightly shower, he brought the gun with him out of the cell. He had the gun hid inside the cell. It was a uh, chrome-plated twenty-five automatic. And uh, I heard the shots go off, and then it came over the radio that there was a man in, the, in one of the cell blocks with a gun. I took off running, went to where it was at, and one of the officers that was there was trying to spray mace up to the next level and tried to spray mace on the inmate with the gun. And he told me where he was at and I rounded the steps and went over there and then when I grabbed hold of the door to go down through there where he was, uh, that door was was like a cell door. It had bars on it. And the inmate put, the, put his hand through the bars and had that gun in his hand and stuck it to my forehead. Wow. I backed away and got, a, got out of his line of sight and he dropped the gun. But when he dropped the gun, we picked it up and then went down through there to find out who got shot. And he so shot that bigger that, fella that had been bugging him. Do what now? He shot that bigger guy that had been bugging him. Shot him nine times. I, I assume and he, did, he did not survive? Yeah, shot him. No, he, uh, he, he survived. Shot him nine times. And uh, none of them, because it was a twenty-five automatic. And the inmate that got shot was rather large. He was about six, seven, six, eight, close five hundred pounds. Wow! None of them, none of the bullets would penetrate deep enough uh, and got to anything vital. But plus, the guy had a limb. and he, he so he survived the gunshots. Wow! Did did, uh, did the little guy face retribution afterwards? I mean, yeah, he had to come back to court. They shipped him out. And to another prison on the other end of the state. Oh, okay. And then uh, 
sometime later he had to come back and uh, go to outside court. And whenever something like that happens, uh, state of Tennessee, Flush Brushy Mountain would do their internal investigation. Then all of that information is turned over to the attorney general. Once that's turned over to the attorney general, and it's pretty much out of Brushy Mountain's hands. Then, you know, then they make their recommendations of, yes, he needs to face charges or, you know, or they'll drop the charges altogether. That's wild. I bet there's a lot of uh, escape attempts, too. Yes. Real quick, I yes. want to tell you, before before we get into that, um, you were talking about that gun being smuggled into him in pieces and him putting it back together. I had a yeah. good friend who he's passed away now, but he served in Vietnam and one of his buddies had had uh, gotten a, a, a Russian assault rifle off of this Viet Cong, and he broke it down into pieces and, and mailed it home to his wife a piece at a time, so that yeah. she, so that he could have it as a souvenir when he got back home. He didn't give her real good instructions. She gave it to her brother, who was a gunsmith. He put it back together, put a beautiful walnut stock on it, and then she shipped it back to him. <laughs> in, in Vietnam. And so some officer ended up with that on his wall. <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be an interesting mail call, wouldn't it? <laughs> Uncle Sam ain't doing enough for you. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah, we, we didn't send you any cookies today, but here's your gun back. Here's your gun back. <laughs> Golly, that's funny. But anyway, Woo! so every time I hear about anybody having to put a gun together, I think about that story. <laughs> Appreciate you, baby. <laughs> Way to go, pumpkin. All right, well, we're going to take another quick break for a word from our sponsor, coffeeandsugar.com. And today's episode is brought to you by coffeeandsugar.com. That's K-A-W-F-E-E-A-N-D-S-U-G-A-R, coffeeandsugar.com. Home of Granny's Hillbilly Coffee, some of the best coffee you'll ever drink. If you use promo code HOLLER at checkout, you'll save 15% off orders of $29 or more. Visit coffeeandsugar.com and tell them the Hillbillies in the Holler sent you. We're back. All right. We're talking with Larry Wright, who was a prison guard at Brushy Mountain Prison for 32 years and still works there now as a tour guide. And we've been talking about the history of the, the prison and about uh, some of the interesting things that happened there over the years when uh, uh, Larry was working there. And now uh, Boo Boo alluded to it a few minutes ago about the escapes. There were a couple of escape attempts, uh, uh, weren't there? Yeah. Oh, there were escape attempts. Uh, quite often, but now Brushy holds a distinction of, uh, as far as, uh, what's called behind the wall. So inside the wall, there has never been a successful escape from inside the wall. By that, I mean, uh, I'm only aware of seven people that ever got outside the wall. And that was when James Ray made his escape in, oh, June of 77. Now, um, by successful, I mean that they got away and we just quit looking for them. Nobody has ever done that. Every time there's been an escape, we caught them. Now, 
when you have your minimum security inmates, which are out front, those are the inmates that you see sometimes on the side of the road picking up trash or uh, whenever a community has a disaster like a flood or a fire or something like that, then those are the inmates you see helping clean up. Right. Now, those, those guys uh, would walk off occasionally. But generally, whenever they walked off like that from out front, they didn't go very far because they they'd get to the road and somebody would pick them up in the car. So as far as the bloodhounds tracking them, you know, they could only track them to the, to the highway. And no matter how good a dog you have, he can't track good your radials. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, you know, the man is pretty much over once the dog figures out that, you know, they're, they got to the highway and somebody picked them up. Now, I, I've said for years, and, and it's, I say it as a joke, but it, you know, I mean, it's kind of serious. Whenever somebody escapes, you only need two people. You need to send one of them to his mother's and one of them to his girlfriend and just sit there for a day or two. He will show up at one of those two places. Yeah, that's true. There's no need looking so, for him near the prison. He's going to get the, away very quickly. Yeah, there's no need looking forever because he'll be at one of those two places soon. He's always going to go see mama and he's always going to go see his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. But now, in, like I said earlier, uh, Jim Ray and six other inmates escaped in June of 77. The original plan for their escape was only supposed to be three people. Now, one of the guys that assisted James in the escape worked in maintenance and they got scrap pieces of water pipe screwed those water pipes together, and then um, they had a diversion. A friend of theirs started a fight. All of the attention was diverted toward the fight, and then James and them put the ladder on the wall and climbed over. Now, there was, like I said, there was only supposed to have been three. The other four that made up the total of seven, uh, they only escaped because they were taking advantage of the ladder being there. Uh, the last man going over the wall got shot. Uh, he was found just outside the wall. Uh, James was gone 54 hours, and in 54 hours, he only made six miles from the prison. The Brushy Mountain's pretty, uh, pretty remote. It's very remote. Yeah. The, the direction that they went when they went over the wall... Uh, in that same direction, when you pull it up on Google Maps and look, there's nothing for 30 miles but another mountain right behind it. Russian Mountain is also known for having extremely large rattlesnakes. Oh, it's like the Great the, White Sharks uh, in San Francisco. The land is extremely steep and rugged, and that's why he only, in, two, uh, in nearly two and a half days, that's where he only made six miles. Wow. Now, the one guy that was gone the longest was gone 72 hours. But they were all caught within within three days. <clears throat> now, you uh, you knew him personally. I mean, you you actually knew. Oh, yeah. I, kn I knew James for about 11 years. Um, James left in 92. In July or in June of 81, James was stabbed by four black inmates. And uh, they said that they stabbed him in retaliation for the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, 
I, I disagree with that. I've got my own personal uh, thoughts on that. But they said they stabbed him for uh, retaliation for the murder of Martin Luther King. And uh, James, uh, as a result of that stabbing, he had uh, 22 stab wounds and 70-some-odd stitches. Uh, none of the stab wounds were life-threatening. And if you've got time to stab him 22 times, you've got time to stab him deep enough to kill him if you want him dead. Wow. Now, I think personally that was probably a publicity-type thing. But as a result of that stabbing, he had to have a blood transfusion. Blood transfusion, he developed hepatitis. The hepatitis turned into cirrhosis of the liver. And cirrhosis was what eventually killed him in 98. Now, he left Russia in 92. Uh, he was sent to Nashville to the uh, prison hospital. Uh, our, our nursing staff and doctor staff had done all they could for him. Well, that was what I was going to ask so said, because he, I knew he passed away at Memorial Hospital in Nashville yeah. because my sister-in-law was the head of critical care there um, yeah. when, when he died on that ward. Um, she was a, uh, she's an RN and she was the head of critical care where he was when he died. And I want, I was going to ask you, cause I didn't know that part of the story, why he would have been sent to Nashville from Brushy Mountain. It would have been made, made more sense to send him to UT. Yeah. But pretty much about all we had was, uh, immediate care. Yeah. Type, type thing. We didn't have anything, uh, established for long-term care. And, uh, once our, once our doctors and, and nursing staff and all had uh, reached their limit as to what they could do for him, then that's why he was transferred on to Nashville. And then uh, it got to the point where then he was transferred to the outside hospital. Yeah, he was no threat at that point. You know, what we referred to as pre-world hospital. Right. And then that, you know, that's where he eventually died was in that pre-world hospital in Nashville. Well, you, now, uh, real quick, I had another question. You you said a while ago he was the admitted killer. I knew he was convicted. Did he actually confess to it? Well, he confessed to it in the beginning. And then a couple of days after that, uh, he recanted his story. And uh, he spent the rest of his time in prison trying to get back into court. Now, uh, because he had confessed, the state did not have to give him a trial. Right. Because he was he, he admitted doing it. Uh, the King family did not think he did it. They thought that there was other people involved. Now, in, uh, oh gosh, let's see, James died in 98, I think about 1996, I think, late 90s, HBO did a, a series of a mock trial as to whether or not James did it. And during that mock trial, he was found not guilty. Yeah. During that mock trial, some information came out. Uh, there was a business owner uh, in Memphis that uh, the King family sued because of some information that came out during that mock trial. And he was found guilty of conspiracy to kill... Dr. King. Wow. And and uh, the King family only got, uh, they only sought restitution from him, and they had to pay, uh, he had to pay them, I think it was $100 restitution. 
But based on some of the information that came out during that trial, the King family felt that uh, state, federal, government, and possibly the mafia were involved in it. Well, Larry, do you think he did it? No. Well, involved in it? Yes. Pull the trigger? No. Planning it? No. I don't. Um, kind of, kind of just I just don't. I don't. I don't feel like James was smart enough to do all that. See, and you're not the first person I've talked to who who had met him that said that. I've, I've talked yeah. to other people who may have said he wasn't that smart. No, no. That's that's interesting. I don't. But now as, as, he had, uh, he did admit that he went from uh, Memphis to Birmingham, Alabama, and got the gun and brought the gun back. He did admit that. Yeah. But now, as far as the planning, pulling the trigger, no, I don't think he did that. Well, that's interesting. Well, we run a, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, we appreciate you okay. being on here with us. Uh, real quick, before we go, uh, uh, was it pretty cool uh, getting to meet Morgan Freeman? I didn't get to see him. Oh, you didn't get to see him. He uh, during just the, during the show, everything that uh, Morgan Freeman did was uh, – Based out of Los Angeles, so I guess he didn't want now, to end up being an institution. And when they <laughs> when they did the show, and some of the some of the background scenes were green screened, and then some of the scenes that they showed uh, inside prison cells and stuff like that wasn't that brushy. Interesting. Okay, that was all. He, uh, he never left California. <laughs> All the miracles of, of showbiz. <laughs> well, Larry, we sure appreciate you being with us. And uh, we're going to no come up there. Whatsoever. We're going to come up there and do a, a ghost hunt with you sometime. Or on a day tour. Just make come, a You yeah. come right on and we'll try to scare the britches from off of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, we appreciate you listening. This has been another episode of Three Hillbillies on the Couch. Um, we've been talking with Larry Wright from uh, Brushy Mountain Prison here in Tennessee. And uh, really appreciate you being a guest with us. Uh, we appreciate you listeners taking a break from your busy podcasting schedule to listen to our podcast. Um, you can check out all those videos and stuff. You can see that uh, Great Escapes episode on uh, from the History Channel. It is available on YouTube, as well as all those other paranormal videos that uh, he was telling us about. And then... Uh, if you would uh, follow us on social media at Hillbillies in the Holler, at Meet Buford, and at Moonshiner's Life, uh, you can also purchase merchandise at uh, hillbilliesintheholler.com and meetbuford.com. And uh, you can also follow us on all those social media platforms. Oh, and, and then the other thing was uh, uh, be sure and support our sponsors, uh, bigfootsearchgear.com and coffeeandsugar.com. We appreciate them. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Buford. I'm Boo Boo. Y'all be good to each other. You've been listening to Three Hillbillies on a Couch, live from downtown Boogertown. You can follow us on social media at Hillbillies in the Holler, at Moonshiner's Life, and at Meet Buford. Y'all come back now.